Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending the 9th of June. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Dr. Jen asks the deceptively complex question, what is a penguin, to introduce a recent study looking at how very differently humans can define the same concepts. And hugely multi-talented Declan Ferbergillick takes us to the heart of his new play, Jackie, on now as part of Rising. Tackling the big questions, I asked, does anyone win in a double-trained boom gateway? And the discerning Mel Cranenberg reviews Chris Neen's latest book, Fat Girl Dancing. Bioluminescent Dutch designer Dan Roosgaard gave us a behind-the-scenes look at his light show Spark taking over the Fed Square sky. Nat makes a valiant effort to resurrect the Jaffel maker. And we end the week with Friday funny bugger Irvi Majumda and a relationship bombshell. Melbourne's own Triple R. There are a few things that generate universal consensus, but the wisdom of Dr. Jen is one of them. Morning, Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, that's so lovely and true. That, that, well, I don't know that it's true, it's but true. I think it's lovely. But yeah, as, as you said, I, I want to talk about words today and what we actually mean when we use particular words. So I thought we'd start with seal. Simon, what comes to your mind if I say the animal, if I say the word seal? What do you, for example, do you think a seal is graceful? Indeed, I do think a seal is very graceful. But yeah, as soon as you mention that word, I picture, um, an, yeah, a, an animal by the seasides, uh, maybe grey fur potentially. But also, mm-hmm. I'm, I understand this isn't always the case depending on the season and location. I think of a very friendly, very graceful animal that produces a, a compelling sound that I couldn't imitate. What is this? No, like, this it's just poetry I in know. motion, right? <laughs> no. I thought of a snaplock seal. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I should have been more specific. Yeah. Being no, you animal. said animal, but um, but uh, so so. What about the word penguin then, um, Daniel? Do you think a penguin's noisy? Is it awkward? Is it heavy? Yes, I'd see a you know a nuggety little rotund. <laughs> you know, kind of fluffy. Well, I don't know. Yeah, white and black and short. White and black and short. Okay. Short and stout. Uh, mm. Short and stout. Any anything to add to Daniel's description? Um, flightless. Yeah. Um, they mate for life, don't they? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, me, me the biologist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm at an advantage because I was at the aquarium very, very recently uh-huh. staring at them and I saw someone clicking, wanting a photo in front of the penguin, clicking the penguins. No. I couldn't oh, believe really? it. Like that, I mean, I know they're dressed as butlers, but it's still... <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, just me saying a word like seal or penguin and we sort of like we go into our heads right and we just sort of imagine and so your recent experience of seeing a penguin Mm. Daniel obviously has an impact on how you think about penguins and so there's this new research that I want to talk to you about that looks at um, basically the fact that when two people use the same word they can have totally different concepts of what that word means and this isn't exactly new there was a really famous study back in the early 1980s um, that looked at 
the concepts that young children have for particular words and how that kind of evolves as children age and have more life experience. So, for example, if you ask a four-year-old what an aunt is, they probably say, oh, that's this woman who's mates with my parents and who gives me Christmas presents. <laughs> Whereas if you wait a little bit and maybe talk to an eight or a nine or a ten-year-old, they'll probably say, oh, yeah, well, my aunt is the sister of my mum or my dad. Um, you know, they're, they're part of my family. And so that's, you know, with time a child can see something that they can't just observe, you know, this relational kind of deeper understanding of what an aunt is. So, you know, we've known that for a long time. But in terms of adults, we also have known for a long time that people find it really hard to agree on kind of higher level abstract things. Like if we were going to have a discussion about what is knowledge or what is fairness, you know, we'd bore the listeners because we'd still be here in three days, right? (laughs) Like we know that those things are really complicated. Um, But researchers have really struggled to get any sort of grip on just how often do people disagree, how many different ideas can people have about a word and how well do we understand different people's perceptions of words. And so this new study sets out to try and quantify that. And so they decided let's use something really simple. Let's not go for knowledge or fairness or equity. Let's go for animals that people are aware of. So a penguin, an ostrich, an eagle, a dolphin, a whale, you know, people know what those things are. And just like Simon, when I said seal, you immediately had this picture in your head. But the question is, is your picture the same as, you know, the same as other people's pictures? So they did a few different experiments, quite simple, but I think really interesting. The first one was basically to say, they asked a whole heap of people, about um, 1,800 people, to make similarity judgments. So, for example, the question is, what's most similar to a penguin, a finch or a dolphin? So a finch is also a bird, right? But a penguin moves a lot more like a dolphin. And so you ask people what they think is more similar. And then in the second experiment, they ask people for more of these kind of judgments that we were just talking about. So, you know, is a penguin noisy? Is it heavy? Is it awkward? That sort of stuff. And then they did some really fancy maths, which I don't fully understand, but I really like the graphs they made to kind of cluster people's concepts into different areas. Um, and essentially they uncovered people have hugely different Ideas. So somewhere between 10 and 30 quantifiably different concepts for even really simple things like a penguin, which is massive, right? It's, and it's really, really different. And things have huge implications across the field of human endeavour in law, science, of course. But if we have such profoundly different understandings of, of simple concepts, which can be defined quite easily, what does that mean for those more abstract ideas as well? Well, a- absolutely. That, that's, the, that's the point. Um, because, you know, some people were saying, yeah, you know, a penguin is, is noisy and plump and it's quite like a whale. Mm. Whereas other people are like, no, no, you know, it's this graceful thing like a dolphin that just, you know, moves beautifully through the water. And as you say, what does that mean for more complicated stuff? Um, and, you know, a lot of it probably comes down to life experience. If you're someone who's just been at the aquarium watching penguins kind of waddle awkwardly and, and you know, slide around on the fake ice, you're like, mm. oh, gee, they seem quite heavy and cumbersome. Whereas maybe you're someone who studied zoology once upon a time, like I did, and you know that birds have really light bones to help most of them fly. And you're like, well, maybe penguins are light too, even though they don't fly. So, you know, all of that's really interesting, but um, it shows that there's very little overlap, essentially in how we see things. But the next part of the study, I think, was the most important because the researchers also asked the people, the participants in this study, to say how many people out of 100 did they think would agree with them. Mm. And... 
basically, most of the people believe that, that roughly two-thirds of other people would agree with them when actually it was way, way smaller. So in some cases, people thought that they were absolutely in the major- majority when essentially nobody <laughs> saw it the same way as they did. And so it means we're kind of oblivious to the fact, you know, we think that people see the world the same way as we do, and yet apparently they don't. And maybe this is part of why we have so many disagreements. Um, and, you know, as exactly as you said before, Simon, like if this can happen with really common nouns like penguin and eagle and chicken and whale... What the hell does that mean for big things that really matter to us like fairness and inequality and climate change and, and justice? I mean, it means this is we, – we are, you know, possibly just completely talking across one <laughs> mm, another. Well, Simon used described the seal as grey, but I conjured up instantly more brown. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, of course, they are grey, but it, it would not have popped in my head. Well, it depends what species of seal well, you're talking yeah, about, yeah. right? <laughs> So uh, maybe before getting into like a heated, not a heated, but a, a meaty discussion with like family and friends, maybe just make sure you can all agree on what a penguin is or a seal, get that on the table If, first. if you're yeah. having discussions yeah. about penguins and seals. Yeah. I mean, I guess what it just reminds us really is how important it is to be curious mm. and to not make assumptions. Because it just strikes me that if I'm assuming that when I say penguin, we all see the same thing and I launch into a really, yeah, important emotional discussion about penguins, how could we ever possibly make headway respectfully with that conversation without me first of all saying, hey, Nat, when I say penguin, you know, what do you think? And rather than expecting you to agree with me, Mm. actually just genuine curiosity asking what do you think of or what do you feel about this and then just waiting to hear your answer and trying to incorporate that into the conversation going forward. That's what's, I think, so frustrating about being asked to draw an animal sometimes. Mm. I have an idea but I don't have the talent to describe it with a picture Mm. and yeah so communicating that knowledge is flawed i'm screwed right out of the gate (laughs) not not a pictionary fan (laughs) i think it's quite confronting when i think of a penguin i think of happy feet i'm thinking of a cartoon how juvenile (laughs) (laughs) no but i think that's really important because that like that tells us that often our ideas are informed by popular culture with all of its biases right all of the biases we know that are part of popular culture it means that we are making assumptions not even on our own personal experiences by on what other people have decided they want to tell stories about. I think that's really important. And mm. most people's experience of penguins would be happy feet. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and perhaps the complexity of human experience and interpretation is a feature and not a bug. Mm. Uh, look, I, I think it's part of what makes us human, right? Mm. But if we're not aware of it and if we continue to think that we are absolutely in the major- majority with the way we see the world and, and just have no concept that people see it differently to us, then maybe that, that wonderful diversity of humanity becomes really problematic. Mm. Well, <laughs> unequivocally fascinating. <laughs> Dr Jen, thanks, Ace. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Declan Ferbergill burgeoning talent stack encompasses prose, rap, visual arts and, of course, theatre with the playwright's 2018 production Big House Dreaming, premiering at Melbourne Fringe and receiving awards for Best Performance Work, Best Writing, Best Emerging Indigenous Artist and also Green Room Awards for Independent Writing and Best Ensemble. Having a resident writer in the MTC's Next Stage program, the artist's work is back. 
on the MTC stage with Jackie, a play about family, community, work and culture that examines the personal costs of navigating it all in contemporary Australia. And to tell us about it, the Triple R broadcaster, educator and poet joins us now. Declan, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. I can say that that all pales in comparison uh, when I put it next to being in the 3 R studio. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jack, Jack, Jackie. (laughs) Yeah, Jack, Jack, Jackie. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds... It's... I I mean, I... Full disclosure, I just love this play. Um, Where where did you start with it? Um, I started with it... or I sort of feel as though it started with me um, actually around the time that I was writing Big House Dreaming, um, I tend to, when I'm writing, I tend to write a lot and not think too much about where it's going to go. I just kind of generate a whole lot of material and then kind of structure it and then kind of plot it and then turn it into something once it becomes clear what it wants to be. But that usually means that there's a whole lot of, whole lot of leftover material and most of that kind of goes, oh, well, see you later or whatever, and that's just kind of part of the... Um, kind of the collateral damage of just generating in that way means that a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor but if there's something that feels like it wants to be something then I'll I'll usually I'll squirrel it away for something and yeah out of out of big house dreaming came this kind of a voice and a kind of and this kind of set of um, ideas and contradictions and I kind of went oh that that wants to be something and so that was 2018 and then but around that time I'd had unwritten as yet but I had another kind of set of ideas and thoughts that were kind of like oh imagine this or what if this or and that was kind of a character as well Um, and that character that I've been thinking about wasn't a character yet but that was Jackie I was like what if a man did this and this or what if a man what if a man had this kind of life and then the the writing that had come out of Big House Dreaming um, was was what became Glenn so I went okay well these two um, gentlemen um, Mm. kind of exist in this kind of uh, embryonic amorphous unnamed pre-character state and I just started throwing them into scenes together um, and I got uh, some of those scenes um, those of you who have seen it will know the first scene where we meet uh, where Glenn and Jackie are together that's one of the first scenes of the play and kind of so much of the play is is kind of encapsulated and seeded in that scene so many of the dynamics and the contradictions and the drama is in that scene and so from that it kind of uh, kind of grew from that and it took a long time and it grew big and it, and it had to get kind of shaved down and, and, and trimmed and restructured and whatever. But that was it. that kind of initial um, kind of compatible incompatibility of that scene was where the, the kind of the seed of the drama came from. It's yeah. so interesting to hear you talking about the characters being thrown together and you discovering what would emerge from their encounters. What would you say are some of the most striking dynamics that you find when these two characters are brought together? Uh, I, think, I think the kind of the way that these the two men... Um, well, one of them really doesn't understand the other one, um, but really ho- hopes to and kind of needs to have a kind of control over the situation. Um, you know, Glenn's a character who's um, quite quite insecure and he's going through a particularly difficult time and he's sort of trying to redefine himself coming out of a marriage and um, his world's kind of upside down and he encounters this man who's very um, uh, kind of t- seemingly very together and kind of... Um, rich of rich of character and very kind of like suave, and he's got it all together, and he's very sexy. And so he find like Glenn sort of finds that very um, d- uh, compelling, but also a bit disarming. And he's kind of oh, he's very uh, he finds it a bit confronting. Um, and so yeah, and so he doesn't really understand the situation. Whereas whereas Jackie kind of at least it appears to be completely all over the situation, got things under control. Um, but both of the men below the surface. Um, for neither of them, um, for neither of them, is it quite as it appears. Neither of them's 
kind of neither of their sense of their own power is quite as it seems when they first meet, um, and and not quite as it seems when we first meet them. And I think that's that's you know we sort of see that switch and turn and the way they interact and who who it's a it's a big status play like the play in in, in from scene to scene we kind of where the audience are invited to um absorb a sense of who has the status and then um through the writing and through the through the drama we see that kind of switch in unexpected places so yeah I, I, does that, I hope that answers the question does. yeah uh you spoke of big house dreaming and of class and social mobility being issues you were exploring does jackie as a kind of companion piece to that explore social mobility in a sense yeah i think it does i think that's a good way to look at it you know like i think that um, you know, the, the ideas of the play can be seen um, really, you know, like there's an intellectual kind of growth and, and connectedness to my earlier my early writing. And I think I think for a lot of writers probably um, often it will seem that we're kind of chewing on the same thing or we're, we're looking at the same thing, but hopefully we grow and we're not writing literally the same thing again and again. But, yeah, I want to look at, um, you know, the ways that, the ways that class um, and geography and, and inequality and... Um, and and gender and and sexuality and property kind of keep people kind of where they are um, or enable people to kind of, um, you know, seemingly grow out of or transcend their class status. But I I really want to look at the the social totality that um, means that there there are sort of certain key limitations to how far anyone can really go, even though it would seem that, um, you know, maybe they've, they've outgrown their former lifestyle or they've um, they've made it or they've, they've, they've kind of um, moved up in the world. So the play kind of problematizes that idea that, um, that anyone can really be the master of their own life or um, take things um, right to the top, you know? Yeah. Uh, can you speak to the cast and how integral it is to the play or they are? Yeah, I mean, I mean working with this cast has been a, 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 a delight but also a privilege, you know? Like I haven't, you know... <laughs> Relatively speaking, I haven't been making theatre that long, um, and the the breadth of knowledge and life experience um, and just stage time um, in the plays is enormous. Um, we've got uh, Greg Stone and Alison White um, in two of the roles, and like just between them, they've got decades of experience, and and they've they've got these incredible, as well as acting minds, they've got these incredible dramaturgical and dramatic minds, and and so it's just. It's incredibly exciting and, 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 and an honour and a privilege for me to be in the room while they're rehearsing to see how they work that material and, 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 and I take notes on that and it, some of the notes go into the play. So that's huge. Um, Guy Simon is, um, has grappled with this role, a very, very challenging role for you know, a young Aboriginal man um, in, in the most spectacular way and his, and his performance is sort of so, is so refined and so... Um, nuanced and 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 in so the play demands that he moment to moment makes these huge switches in in the way he's interpreting a situation and and um, he's just a beautiful and competent actor um and 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 Nagali Shaw um really really knocks it out of the park as well it's his first it's his first appearance as a stage actor um and he's you know he's a he's a really young up-and-coming talent and you know he he couldn't have been better cast we were so when I met him I was like um I gave him the script. We, he read the script and, um, and we did an interview with him and, um, and I was like, oh, yeah, so what do you think? And he just kind of, he, he was like, yeah, no, nah, it's good. No, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I get that. No, nah, I, can, I can do that. Yeah, no, nah, that's because he was like, 
the, the character is sort of is based on um, people I know from uh, sort of northern and northwestern and western New South Wales, and and he himself is from Dubbo, and I've spent a bit of time in Dubbo when I was um, kind of in the early stages of writing the character, and he was like, no, I know this character, I can do that. Nice. And I, was, so I, was, I just believed him. I was yeah. like, yeah, for sure. Um, and we, yeah, we couldn't have been happier. And But the four as a team are so dynamic, so well cast, and, and they, they really they pitch each of their performances in accordance with the text really so well against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even though some of the, even though some of the characters are um, kind of embody and express and are struggling with such um, awful things, you kind of... Well, I because I love my characters because I wrote them, but I think audience as well. I kind of like they kind of feel this connection to um, even the most even characters that have that are that are that are embodying some of the most awful contradictions and ideas. Mm. Um, and I think the the, the actors really honour that, um, and it's beautiful. I, I was the performances were outstanding; they're incredible. But I'm curious to know because obviously you wrote these characters, but is there anything that the actors do throughout the process that surprises you? Like, do you learn more about the characters, or, or is it do you honour the text more? Yeah, I mean. I had a, you know, I had a, having worked on the play for such a long time and in such a rigorous way with um, Mark Wilson and, and Jenny Medway, who work as a, a, a work as dramaturgs with me. So people who, for people who don't know, a dramaturg is like broadly we just uh, is what we call a theatre editor. Mm. Um, and so, so we had kind of, I had kind of rendered and re-rendered and rewritten these characters, and I had a pretty clear idea of what was we were going to get coming into the room. Um, but yeah, certainly there are there are times and moments where people on, both honour the text, but take a moment in a particular direction, or or stretch a line, or or pick a, a moment to heighten, or pick a moment where I thought they might heighten it, but actually they pull back on it, and that's the joy of that's the joy of seeing people work the text. And you know, I'm not that prescript, I'm not really prescriptive with the text. Like I don't I don't give a lot of stage direction. I, I, I almost I probably almost never tell an actor how to play a line like written in the text. Mm. Um, it's all sort of. It's all kind of rendered within the dynamic of um, of of the the one an hour and forty minutes of action, action itself, and I let I let them read the play and, and turn the play into the performance. Um, and yeah, and Mark, I mean Mark Wilson knew the play and he knew what we were going to get out of it from a long, like from ages ago. So and I trust him, and we're co- kind of so uh, politically and philosophically in alignment. And so I was now I never kind of was like, oh, you're going in the wrong direction, or like, oh, that's not the right way to play that line, or oh, you've misread the scene. Um, I was, it's a, you know, it's a slightly unusual dynamic where I'm, I'm around a lot and I'm not there being like, oh, you're doing it wrong, do it right. Um, but I, but if, if, if I really felt like the scene was going in like completely the wrong direction, I'd probably have a quiet work yep. tomorrow, but, but he knows the work so well. What have been your observations of audiences show to show? Do, mm. Does sometimes the, the awkwardness is ramped up or the laughter is higher? What's the gamut here? Yeah, we've got our kind of key moments like over, you know, that emerge over the season, like, there's just moments that we we know get a laugh or that are awkward or that get a gasp or where there's a you know where there's a, re, a reveal of some kind and um, you know it's fairly they're fairly reliable um, uh, but then sometimes you get a huge laugh or you'll get a big laugher in a particular <laughs> big laughers are great because they just help other people to laugh um, especially if there's like if there are awkward if there you know it's a fairly it's fairly awkward material at times and I think that um, audiences um, are a bit like. <laughs> Uh, people don't know how to respond to it, and if there's a couple of people there to laugh, it kind of helps people to know that they can laugh as well. Mm. Um, 
And uh, but yeah, like I said, there's there's kind of key moments that feel like the audience warms to that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, the beautiful thing and about theatre is that every night is different, and um, every audience is is their own kind of mass cast member, and so they bring something, they bring themselves to it, and they they contribute to the work every night, and it and it makes for a rich and dynamic um, kind of week of shows every week. And um, and that's yeah. I sit in the audience. I don't I don't go I don't go to every show, but I, I go to a few, and we've had a few forum nights and things like that. And so I'm always interested to see what people are, you know, squirming in their seat. Or sometimes I'll be sitting next to someone who I can see holding their face and 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 kind of muttering and swearing to themselves under their breath. <laughs> and that's always satisfying for me because I was like, yeah, I want to put my audience through something. That's yeah, the whole point of yeah, writing drama, you know. Exactly. So if we if you want to check out what we've been discussing, Jackie, directed by Mark Wilson, is showing until the 24th of June at the Art Centre's Fairfax Studio. Do you think it'll get a life? beyond this oh look you know here's hoping fingers crossed um you know it you know almost all theater gets if it's lucky gets one life and so you know like our, our, the fringe shows that i made and little shows you know like five five nights that's it and maybe never sees a lot of day again so even to have a season of this length is an extraordinary honor and privilege for me um if it if it had any more i mean there's also like you can buy the play text i've never had a play published before <laughs> um so th- this already is uh, sort of an overwhelming uh, kind of step up in what I can, what I, what I had come to hope that my writing might achieve. So anything beyond this, you know, like who knows, maybe maybe another season or a tour or something. But um, yeah, I don't know. Watch this space, but um, but don't let that. Don't let dissuade don't, you, don't from, let that dissuade you from getting in and seeing it. Yeah, Exactly. Head to mtc.com.au for more information about Jackie. We've been speaking with playwright Declan Ferbergillick. Thanks, Declan. Hey, thanks for having us. Have a good night. Uh, have a good morning. Triple <laughs> R, keep it locked. Triple <laughs> R. Yesterday I was riding home from the station and just as I was approaching like a level crossing, the the boom gates came down the bell started ringing that's fine i was like okay take a break and then just as um yeah the the booms were coming down i saw another cyclist pull up on the opposite side of the train tracks and i was like oh i know them (laughs) and so i kind of gave them a wave there was nothing back like i was kind of really vigorously waving and i'm guessing this is about would you say like a 25 meter distance exactly yeah so it's uh, yeah i mean it's a decent distance but you can definitely like i was like certain it was them nothing back i was like oh that's strange and then the train passed mm. and then the the gates remained down and I kind of squinted a bit further. I'm like, is that them? Is that them? <laughs> and then I was like, maybe it's not. I maybe went back and forth in my mind three times. Yeah. And then I was like, the bells were still going. It was making a real scene. And I was like, Because that's a stressful environment. You're thinking it's going to be interrupted by the sound. And then it's a double train. Double train. It's a double train. Both directions. Both directions. (laughs) And the gap between the double trains was so long. Meanwhile, I've left this wave hanging in the air. And I was like, oh, then they looked so similar to um, my friend, they live right near there. It all checked out. I was like, no, it's got to be them. And then I kind of saw that they had much longer (laughs) hair. And I was surprised at how much shame I felt because it was so bizarre. Normally if you do it in 
a like a restaurant or something, you can go, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. But you just had to sit there through this double train, the gap <laughs> in between the double train. Was there a possibility that you could have been waving to someone adjacent to them no, behind them? No, not at all. It no. was absolutely directed at them. But there was a car, so maybe confused. Maybe I confused a couple of people, maybe <laughs> several people I thought was waving at them. I felt very exposed. Everyone would have been able to see. That's, that, that was fine, finally. But it just felt like an eternity. That is very funny. Waiting for those two trains. It's like I could have watched all of the seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> it felt like intellectually I understood it was a few minutes, but it felt like a long time, like I could have needed a jumper. Could it have been construed as a cyclist wave? I think I've travelled to Canberra, well, I have, in a combi van, and combi vans wave at each other. They do, yes. Is that a tradition? I mm. like that tradition. That's nice. And it really stings if they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most do. But do cyclists have a... A shorthand because you see tram drivers as well. Yeah, I love that. Me too. That's a real joy. No, I don't think so. (laughs) Like, I feel like if you do a friendly wave, that's a lovely interpretation, though. It is a nice one. Yeah, you do it on the go. You're in motion, so you're crossing paths. So if I was to do it to a fellow cyclist, I would do it as we were both crossing the tracks. I wouldn't put it out there and let us both sit in it (laughs) for you know what felt like 24 hours, and then the gates came up finally yes and i kind of like sorry but he they gave me nothing and just kept riding i think they were just that's fine maybe a bit awkward it's it's a bit confronting but i did get thinking i'm like is anyone like ever happy to be behind the boom gates like just making it over the train track and then hearing the boom gate go is thrilling isn't Mm. it it's a real rush sense of accomplishment i kind of I have mixed feelings about the boom gates because I was thinking as you were saying, oh, the eternity. And it is funny when it's a double train. It's like that old, like, how long do you hold the door open for someone who's approaching? What is the time frame? Sorry to cut you off, but it's like it felt like a five-minute gap. But it can also be like this enforced meditative space. Mm. Like, you know, when you're traveling on an airplane and traditionally there hasn't been Wi-Fi, so you're kind of like, yep. you have to sort of pause whatever else is going on. I like that. And so the boom gate is kind of like a reminder to be present. Sure. Yeah, no, that, I'll take that. Maybe there's a social event that you're dreading <laughs> and it just delays it that little bit longer. Another aspect of I, one positive I did think as well is I think it's really great when the boom gates are down, you, it's a real opportunity for the keep clear sections of a road markings to shine because mm. if people – because sometimes people are like, I'm not going to – you feel like silly to like um, stop behind the keep clear. I just don't feel like people always obey it. But if the boom gates come down, there's like an intersection. Yes. Um then you get to see those cars go through and flow and that's just really yeah, nice. It is satisfying. To, it is satisfying to see that and mm. see people, oh, no, it was, it did pay off. It's the law, you should obey the... Yeah. <laughs> this is a really dynamic environment, isn't it? With yeah, so but much... I, 
Yeah, I feel like it's it's a, a great time for the keep, please. <laughs> if I was a boom gate operator, I would take pride in raising the boom gates, not prematurely, but and not early. No, but at a reasonable juncture. Yes, like this this thing where the train like is well and truly gone, and then they come up. Like, yeah. like what's the risk that it's going to like slam its brakes and go in <laughs> reverse? It's not happening. No. If I was a boom gate operator, I'd be like lifting up those bad boys, like as the last <laughs> carriage passed through. Yeah. Um. Also also, it's a shame that yeah, Dan Andrews didn't think about this when with the street le- level, level crossing, crossing removal. Removals. It's like yes, we'll eliminate fifty level road crossings. You'll have a faster trip to work and no awkward waves from cyclists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Good news, Mel Cranenberg's here on Breakfasts <laughs> to talk books. Hey, Mel. Hey. I thought I was just here to chat. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no. Also, it's like, really sorry, guys, to interrupt your chat. I'm like, yeah, sorry. So rude. Uh, but, of course, how could we not miss the opportunity to, uh, to take advantage of your immense book brain with this literature review, what have you brought in? Oh, I brought in a book that I honestly feel almost shaky about. It's uh, Fat Girl Dancing, a memoir by Chris Neen. And I've long thought that Chris Neen is one of Australia's most incredible writers. Honestly, the output this author has over their you know, the course of their writing life is just extraordinary. They did very much become sort of well-known for writing this very erotic, beautifully written, almost porn level, well, in fact, I think they would have called it that, Mm. type of writing where they rendered incredibly taboo subjects, incredibly beautiful, pushed back on this idea that that sort of writing had to be ugly. And They've also now just really started to open up into writing more about themselves. And their last book was this incredible memoir about identity. I feel like I'm almost breathless talking (laughs) about this. It's sort of strange. The Three Burials of Lottie Neen, which I haven't read a book that I felt so much kinship with in a way. I'm from a very mixed-race background. Chris Neen discovers their own extremely unusual sort of DNA, I guess, as they rove throughout this book, finding different parts of their identity, pulling this patchwork together into a a gorgeous reflection on who they are and what their experiences of life could be and and who their family is and even finding this sort of mystery they never even realised existed. And they've come from this extraordinary family of artists who lived in this very bizarre sort of almost fairy tale like place that was bought with the uh, proceeds of an incredible lottery win their grandmother had. Just an amazing family, a sort of matriarchal family. But this book is one that I would say is Neen's most personal. It's about their relationship with their own body, with their fatness. And it is just an absolutely unique exploration of that. This is, Neen really early on gives you this, I guess, an introduction that talks about how they've read so much and and explored so much of, of the ideas around, you know, of fat activism, of body positivity, of all these things that we think of as as really embracing different body types and then realise that they were somehow just, you know, 
pouring out other people's words or using other people's framing to really reference their own experiences. But in fact, it wasn't exactly what they experienced. And so to write this memoir, they decided to turn back and and look at themselves more completely to really consider the person that they were and how their relationship with their body worked. And I'll just read this little section from, from the end of the introduction. Welcome to the life class where the single subject is my body. In a life class, we start quickly, line sketches to get new angles on a subject, to represent without judgment, to capture an essence of the thing, if not the thing itself. The woman faces the mirror and crouches. She parts her knees, she looks, she documents, and through this documentation, she sees. So throughout this book, it's a kind of amazing uh, series of, I guess, vignettes that build to a greater whole that take you from from Neen's experience of, of weightlessness in water, this wonderful buoyancy that they have, uh, to trying to become a diver and finding that is much more challenging because it raises other elements that they didn't expect to do with their ability to breathe underwater, to even go underwater when they're so buoyant. There's an extraordinary moment when they're uh, in, like, Port Vila and they're swimming and a dugong starts to kind of you know think of them as a friend I guess and and push them out to sea a little and there's this almost sort of slightly terrifying but almost semi-erotic moment with this dugong in the water it's just extraordinary there's these reflections on an incredibly loving partner photographing Neen's body in a way that just you know, it turns it into a piece of art, these broken up little portraits that are then actually used throughout the book, these black and white portraits. They lead to something that's really interesting because as we go throughout the book and we explore the world through Neen's body and through Neen's experiences, we start to see things in this incredibly, you know, different way because it isn't simply this case of, you know, learning to be comfortable in one's body. It's about being totally buffeted around by the world, by a world that doesn't fit, Mm. a world that refuses to fit, and it's constant. There's this wonderful moment, and you can see the book building towards this, uh, this, you know, I guess the the theme at the start, which is the idea of the fat girl dancing. And if you ever want to be utterly delighted, look that up, (laughs) because I did when I was looking up this book, and there's so many joyful pictures of people dancing just in their bodies and you do build up to this um, moment where Neen embraces uh, going into burlesque and really coming back into a sense of their body that they had before they try to destroy it with dieting and other other sort of self-hating things and and I do have to say that there may be some triggery elements for people reading this book I should say it is beautifully covered but as you go throughout, you realise Neen is um, themselves or was themselves uh, a visual artist and starts to paint an image of themselves. And as you go throughout the book and you're getting these little sort of pictures throughout that you see beautifully kind of artistic images that um, Neen's lover, Anthony, has taken, this beautiful um something that only a, a partner who really adores someone could see these beautiful landscapes of a body um, that lead up these pieces that are sort of abstract to this wonderful whole 
that Nina has painted that is just joyous mm. of, of a body sort of looking up at the stars of her of their body looking up the stars with this um, tasseled kind of things over the boobs that are like you know what they would wear in burlesque just extraordinary so I've, I've sort of found as I go into this that I've been shifting back and and reading through different sections and there are utterly heartbreaking moments because you have this this moment of triumph where uh, Neen embraces their body at this wonderful event, um, being around other queer people, uh, other queer writers. It's an event that embraces their literary side and this new kind of feeling of, of you know, being an out-there burlesque dancer. Uh, and they have this triumphant moment where everyone's standing and applauding and it's just wonderful and they feel gorgeous and then go back to the hotel and can't fit into the bathtub and just have this this down moment and then say try to hold on to the earlier feeling but when you're in a world that constantly questions that it's such a a wonderful duality because you're sitting there going we expect so much of people who are in body types or identities that don't fit the way the world has been designed that they're supposed to come out and be proud and should be of course but the world constantly demands so much Mm. and Nina is sitting with this not asking you to you know to say come on my triumphant journey although there is an element of that to it it's really this sense that there is always this you know battle I guess against society that just was not built for anything other than one size I guess. Sounds like an almost a superpower to to sit with these issues and interrogate your own prejudices. It's so interesting because Nina doesn't hide from anything Um, they explore their own um, self-hatred in a way that I can only describe as as incredibly beautiful and powerful but but really deeply felt. Uh, it's just, you know, a really, uh, to say unflinching isn't right because there's something about the way that Neen writes that is just utterly beautiful, just such facility with words, such a way of, I wouldn't say softening the edges, of letting you sink in to this kind of visceral reality that they're in, which is utterly heartbreaking. You can't help but be moved, but but also you feel it in your own body, your own experiences of that. I feel like we talk about reading as an act of empathy and I'm sure, you know, you're seeing a version of what a writer wants you to see, but I do really feel like this book has allowed me into the feeling that this writer wanted me to experience and that is something quite extraordinary and something that Neen does so so beautifully well. Well, as you describe it, it sounds like it has universal appeal. However, who do you think its entry point core audience is obviously it transcends that core audience but well look there's so much in this because in it Nina explores sexuality their sexuality their gender and and throughout the book you're feeling that as an undercurrent which sort of lands at the end that they're exploring their own relationship with with gender and identity it explores bodies and bodies in the world but specifically their own this is such an this is a memoir a great empathetic memoir that uh, you can sink into I don't think there is a a single audience for it. I mean, again, 
memoir is one of those things that you want to really feel and experience the world through this person's eyes and I think Neen has given you this uh, a sense of what it is to live a writer's life what it is to live in this body what it is to to live in a, a wonderful 20-year relationship that is so utterly loving uh, Neen's partner is characterizing this book just is I mean we all want a partner sounds like <laughs> yeah. just extraordinarily and deeply loving and affirming of, of them as a person um, it's also, you know, their relationship with sex and sex has been such a huge part of, of their life and their writing, their output, um, sex and sexuality. So there's so much in this. I, I would be really hard-pressed to say that there is a single no. audience. But, again, I would say if you love beautiful writing and really um, finely crafted sentences, if you like these, you know, poetic, um, beautiful sort of vignettes, if you obviously um, consider, you know, those who might feel triggered by certain elements around, um, you know, body issues or body shaming, there may be some elements that that could trigger. But at the same time, I feel like this is a great act of, of engaging with that, that I would love people to swim in and swim you know, Nin does, floating, as they say, is their superpower. <laughs> and that is, you know, a, in a sense what they're allowing us to do without, like, stopping us from becoming, you know, pulled down by gravity when that hits. But there's definitely transcendental moments and moments when they they slip into this sort of, like, fantastical elements. And there's always a kind of fantastical element or mythological element lurking under their work. It's their, you know, inheritance, as they've written about in The Three Burials of Lottie Neen. Um, you know, it's sort of funny because, you know, there's I've read a, a lot... <laughs> A lot of Australian books, and I would say that I have read pretty much all of of Chris Neen's books. And you know, it may have happened due to reviewing or other things, but every time I've come away feeling like this is just an extraordinary Australian writer. So I think for nothing else, do yourself a favour and, and explore what um, the craft and memoir can really do, because this is really an example of of what it can do, and it's quite something. How about that? Chris Neen's Fat Girl Dancing is out now. And uh, what a treat to have on the show Mel Cranenberg. Thanks, Mel. It's been such a pleasure. Triple R. Dutch designer Dan Ruskard works at the intersection of art and technology with his studio's internationally acclaimed works, including Waterlist, War Smog Free Project, Smart Highway, and the organic firework Sparks, which has come to Fed Square as part of Rising. The artist and innovator whose work is exhibited at the Rijksmuseum Amsterdam, the Tate Modern in London, Murray Art Museum in Tokyo, and the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris says light is his language and tells about his career at the intersection of the practical and poetic. The uh, designer and innovator joins us now. Dan, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. That's a perfect introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel specialises in it. That was actually really good. Thank you. Um, Tell us about this intersection of the practical and the poetic. That's where the magic happens. Yeah. 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 I think that's the beauty of of public art and especially within the Fed Square, that you can show the beauty of a better future. We we talk a lot about it, but how does it feel like? Uh, how, How can you share it? How can you show it? Um, so I'm fascinated with that, like to show the beauty of that better world. Mm. And what 
what is Fed Square as a canvas to you? What What are your hopes and ambitions? Well, I love public space because it's a space where you interact, where you meet, where you exchange. You know, where where where, where you we break through the bubble we sometimes all live uh, can live in. Um, and it's a beautiful space downtown. So we're honored to sort of take over mm. for four nights mm. and uh, bring, our, bring our organic sparks yeah, and create a place of wonder. You know, when is the last time you look up? When is the last time you wondered? Yeah, mm. That's what we want to do. You've previously uh, shut down lights in the city, is that right? To, to help us look yeah. at the sky? Yeah, yeah. Simple idea. Very complicated to execute. Mm. Uh, lights off, stars on. So we convinced <laughs> mayors all around the world to bring back the stars. Uh, tens of thousands of people we're talking about are switching off the light. The mayor has, of course, approved the safety, etc., uh, etc. Et but it was so beautiful to be in one of the most light-polluted cities in the world, Leiden, in, in nearby Amsterdam, and just see parts of the Milky Way. And it's a collaboration with UNESCO, saying that everybody should have the right to see the stars, and eh? seeing the stars would be like a universal heritage. So I think when we talk about the future and these new values, it's not just about sort of bling-bling and, and the tech, but it's about learning from nature and trying to bring it back and seeing stars, what we just talked about, and Spark is all about that, yeah, playing with nature and, you know, trying to learn from it and, and bringing it back into our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that that was, like, quite, like, simple in its concept but complicated to execute. Yeah. How, how is Spark's <laughs> well, my, in comparison to my that? My job is to make complicated thing look really simple, yes. right? It's the same like when you do an interview. You, you guys make it look really simple, but... It's not. (laughs) And so um, I was fascinated with, you know, when you look at traditional celebration, it's Mm -hmm. a lot of bam, bam and confetti and and it's sort of cool, but it's it's really bad. You know, Mm -hmm. all the dogs go crazy and the birds, a lot of a lot of mess. mess, Yeah. yeah, And and so I was looking at that. I'm like, can we not just sort of keep that tradition, but modernize it? Mm -hmm. And so the idea started to can we make it biodegradable? Can we make it more organic? And it was two years of work with a team of designers and engineers in Rotterdam. The first prototypes looked like, you know, like student vomit. You know, <laughs> it's just, it always looks like crap in the beginning. Um, but as, as you're sort of tuning and tweaking, uh, we sort of started to make something that we didn't understand what we were looking at. Mm. And that, that's a good sign. And um, so we started to show it in London and Bilbao. And we're really honored to team up with Rising, with Fed Square, to have it as the premiere in Australia. And, you know, I don't know what kind of interviews you have these days, but it's quite rare that we talk about the future. Mm. And when we talk about the future, it's a quite in a dystopia way, like the uh, sea level and COVID. And, and I think that's a problem because if we cannot imagine that better future, we can also not create it, right? Absolutely. And so to sort of to show this at Rising is not saying, oh, this is the solution for all our problems. No, but it sort of shows like, hey, we can celebrate in a more sustainable way. Uh, hey, we can innovate yes. and, and using beauty as a strategy mm-hmm. to help people to accept change. And I think that's sort of fascinating. Oh, and it's a wonderful way to do that. And Melbourne is also a city in change. Yeah? You have big plans for the inner city. And so it's beautiful to sort of uh, yeah, be a part of that. Very, very much so. And I was kind of curious, talking about that idea of the future and an optimistic lens to view the future. There's a sense in your works also of communal shared sure. sort of experiences and there's an individual wonder in gazing upon these uh, these works of beauty but also a sense of bringing people together can absolutely you, you, you know us? like it's 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 about doing it together you know i was looking two days ago to this you know they invented sound right so this this interview would not be possible that long ago <laughs> you know so the movies were silent right and, and and so people were lis- looking together at a movie in silence right and I don't know about you, maybe I'm sentimental, but I sort of love that, right? 
And so that's why Spark is also silent. Um, uh, because I think it's more magical. We could have done sound and music and the whole bling bling. Um, and of course, Rising is a music festival. So <laughs> we love music, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but to sort of be come together um, in silence and, and, and talk about it and share it is really special. But you're right. I mean, it's definitely... It's collaboration in order to create it and engineer it and innovate it. Mm. But it's also a collective experience. Yeah. In a public space. Where in a public space. It's free entrance. So everybody's welcome. Uh, when the sun goes down, spark goes on for a couple of hours. And what I love is, okay, I think the seventh is a little bit of rain, but yeah, who cares? <laughs> uh, uh, every night it's different. The wind makes it different. The movement of the people, the clouds. So sometimes even myself. Who are, who've been staring at it for a long, long time by now, are looking at what is it doing? You know, so so it's out of my control, sort of, right? It's controlled by nature, which I love and I hate because I'm a designer. <laughs> so I like control, right? I like, and we're switching off all the lights, and, and it's a lot of preparation to bring darkness downtown. Um, so that's a beautiful collaboration as well. But also that resignation that has to occur when you're talking about something in the outdoors where there are so many variables, as you say. Yeah, I mean, there's always the known unknown. There's always something happening that we know will happen that we don't know. Yes. And uh, I'm sure that will happen as well. Yeah. How much of your creative life is epiphany and how much is it grind and dealing with cities and recalcitrant oh, forces? 80% BS to get 20% beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I can say bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, it's in a way it's horrible. uh, An idea is something horrible because it brings you to a place you've never been before. But an idea is something beautiful because it brings you to a place you've never been before. (laughs) So, so a good idea is uncomfortable. Every time I start to work on a new project, I'm like, oh, Mm. because you know it's going to take two years of work. People will say, not possible, not allowed, cannot be done. And you know, when it's finally done, you know what people say then when you show it? Mm. That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Why haven't you done it before? Yeah, you know? It all seems inevitable. And again, I'm, I'm saying this with a smile. Yes. Uh, but, but so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of grinding. At the same time, it's really cool to get a call from, for example, from Fed Square and say, hey, wow, are you, are, welcome. Yes. You know, come. And, and, and I hope it sort of opens up the eyes and the minds of people. What is possible? Right, and not just to feel like like a consumer or waiting or complaining, but be a maker. Mm. Right, make proposals, make new dreams, and it doesn't mean you know everybody gets, you know, you can do Fed Square, you can do your own house, you can do whatever, uh, but be a maker. Yeah, and that's what, really important. What informs your view of the future? How do you? What data input do you have to think about what's to come? Well, if you look at data, we're, 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 it's not so good. <laughs> so, so it really starts with imagination, that if we can, can't imagine that better future, we cannot create it. We, we won't get there, right? Mm. And uh, I miss that. You know, I miss that in our daily lives, in, in the way we talk about it. And also my, the, the previous, I'm, 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 I'm getting old, I'm 43, you know, so like, my, but the young generation, I'm, I still feel young, but okay, the younger generation, <laughs> let's put it like that. My students say our, our future is frozen, right? We, we, we're inheriting all the global challenges. We're not getting the toolkit to fix it. So, ah, and so it's very important, not the optimistic, you just refer to it optimistic. I'm not sure if it's optimistic, but just show there's an alternative, mm. you know, like, hey, we can celebrate without making all the dogs go crazy. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. And it's just a simple example, but you can apply that to mobility, to energy, to transportation. So 
to answer your question, you know, I look what's happening. I look at the innovation. I teach at universities. You know, I keep my eyes open. Mm. Uh, are we going to be scared or, fu- or curious? That's the question we need to answer. And I think we should be curious. Yeah. What would your advice be to emerging artists? Because you talk about, you know, like the logistics, the practicalities, and then also the importance of imagination and being inspired. Yeah, and, the big, and the big teams. And yeah. Everything. yeah. Like, to, to have these ideas but then feeling like emotionally like you hit a brick wall like of like how am I going to make this happen like how am I going to move past this like how do you manage that as an artist well it's important to play with it because it's easy mm. to get down and get gray hair you know what's the most horrible thing uh, what happens when you when you talk about an innovative idea you yeah. know what 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 are the most two annoying words happens in people's reply oh I'm trying to think Just, what okay, okay imagine you, you imagine you 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 have a beautiful idea and you you share it with your friends or your grandma or whomever. And what's the what? it starts with two words. Yeah, but. Very good. <laughs> yes, but. So it happened to me so many times. One morning I woke up. I'm like, we should do something with this. We designed a yes, but chair. <laughs> Existing chair, small voice recognition underneath it. And the moment you sit on that chair, you say those horrible words. <laughs> you get a little shock on the <laughs> on your precious bottom. And we have it in our studio. And everybody knows that story. And it's actually working, right? And it's sort of... I'm not saying you should not be critical. Right? Mm. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, what if we move from yes, but to the what now, right? Mm. And what if we reprogram, because it's about reprogramming our brain, to what is possible? So I think it's about mentality. It's then it gets the hard work, exactly what you're grinding, two years of work, big teams, even in Spark, there are six people walking around, tuning it, you know, tweaking it. Um, and of course, the organization of Rising and, and uh, Fed Square as well. So these are big teams. And then, but I, I, I just hope it, it opens up to show what's possible. Mm. And, and, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's important. And you're there today setting it up? Yeah, okay. and tomorrow, uh, and then uh, 7th until the 10th, free entrance, uh, 7th, a little bit of rain, but who cares? Yeah, and the rest, uh, yeah, we're, It's we're, Melbourne, we yeah, can. Yeah, who cares? We'll be there, Spark will be there. And uh, yeah, come, yeah. and let me know what you think, you know, and let's think what else is possible. Beautiful. Uh, what a great pleasure to have in studio Dan Rusgard, who's the brains behind at Spark installation at Fed Square in the evening from the 7th to the 10th, and I suspect you'll be floating around. I'll be there. Yeah. yeah. yeah but it's not about me. Just look up. Just look up. Dan, thanks very much. Triple R. I mentioned it yesterday, but there was um, an article in The Guardian that was talking about um, the Jaffel iron, how you don't really see it around anymore, which has got me feeling incredibly nostalgic and just kind of contemplating different bread-based <laughs> snacks. What's my favourite? It's pretty much the first thing I read after the show yesterday. Was it? Yeah, when you were talking Fantastic. about it. Fantastic. So we can really self. dive in deep <laughs> on the topic. But first of all, do you uh, – because I needed refreshing on the distinction between a toasty and a jaffle. Mm. So it's the sealed edges of a jaffle. Yes, apparently that that's the most desirable aspect of the toasty to many people, that kind of caramelization that occurs at the edges. Yes, on the edges. It's just something I never really stopped and kind of appreciated, but it really is beautiful. creates this lovely little parcel 
Do you have a preference when it comes to either toasties, jaffles? And I think we can, because you mentioned the pie maker yesterday, Simon. <laughs> I think right. that we can definitely include that in. It's it's a dough-based kind of I am snack. very intrigued by the pie maker. I've, I mean, I've eaten a lot of pies. There used to be a pie shop very close to Triple R, which a lot of people would often go to quite frequently mm-hmm. for lunch. But I've never actually produced a pie at home within one of these pie maker snack machines. Had, yeah. I'm curious about them. But I don't know if I can sort of testify to their effectiveness as I can to the waffle irons and the... Yep. Um, toasty makers. The toasty. Growing up, we had uh, a pie maker, and I—I I mean, it was great. You put you put in the pastry, and then you can put in the ingredients, and it was excellent. But as a kid, I was always quite disappointed with the results because it definitely didn't replicate the the pie. You I don't the know, flakiness. Yeah, of this the pastry kind of like out from a milk bar or yeah, the bakery. It wasn't the same. So I kind of wanted to a replica of that so it's satisfactory but maybe not outstanding yeah not for a kid anyway <laughs> yeah. just like pie maker that'll make the pie that i buy at the bakery no different different experience different culinary experience uh what about you daniel i think jaffles are totally overrated <gasps> no unless, unless they're Here we go. done by an expert <laughs> Uh, Come on. Why are you sealing an edge? Like that is that is real estate for filling. That, that instead funny. it's spilling out over the side. Likely, uh, it is. It, it, they are pot, they're, they're too. They're mysteriously hot. Uh, they're, they they're are. Fact, they're a weapon. They're a culinary <laughs> weapon. They're blistering. They actually do. First of all. If the, the sealing of the edges, it's like another texture and it adds to the whole experience where you, you do burst open, which does come with the risk, with the heat. They did actually mention in this article as well to avoid the mistake of including tomatoes because they can become thermonuclear in the Jaffa maker. Oh, absolutely gracious. blistering. Yes. It's like the equivalent equivalent of eating, I don't know, two <laughs> packets of salt and vinegar chips, your taste buds will be toast. Um, I mean, uh, so you, we're putting the filling in the centre and then hoping that gravity spreads it to the edges. <laughs> mm. uh, I, I think they, they should come with a recommended sauce. I, I think they're they fall into the trap of being too dry. And, and again, I've had good. You can do them well, but I think the strike rate is abysmal. Is do you have, do you ever dabble in making your own? Yeah, yeah, I love them. I, I mean, I, I I tried to d- do them, but I just think we got seduced by the exciting shape. Uh, uh, okay. And I, who do you defer to as a toast? As a what is it? Jack I categorically disagree. Because <laughs> you, yeah, I I, I tend to, to disagree as well, respectfully, because mm. I of course appreciate your perspective but are there jaffle experts that you would appreciate their oh product, yeah I, there are there are jaffle centric cafes i'm aware of that ah. i frequent right. but I, I i just think it's a, especially if you're living in an apartment it is a terrible piece of kitchen real estate <laughs> okay the single purpose or the single function the single function i yeah yes. product yeah electric uh, yeah i'm i'm not into them i'd rather I've more respect and time for a George Foreman grill. <laughs> What's it, uh, the grill like the like the sandwich press? Oh yeah, sandwich press. Has, yeah, I think has distinct. It can work as a sandwich press. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Look, I I don't car- like currently have a jaffle maker. I'm all about the the jaffle iron, and yes, that nostalgia is playing a big part for me here. And I will definitely recognise the heat. Like that's an issue that it can – there's a high risk of burning 
your mouth in and around. But um, it's the whole experience for me. It's the camping, putting it on the fire, the smoky flavor. I probably would never buy a Jaffel out. I think that's a mugs game. I think that I'm all about making it yourself and the creativity for me, a Jaffley is a blank canvas, you know, and the possibilities are endless. I, why is that any different than a sandwich? Because again, the edges, the seal, the edges, <laughs> why, the why smoky... does that make the endless possibilities? It's just an edge of bread. <laughs> well, they, look, they are both. I would say they are both a form of artistry. Absolutely. And like I said before, Daniel, yeah, definitely nostalgia is kicking into gear here. But, yeah, there's something about it I feel like it is. it stands as its own dish for me. Oh, it's portability, less likely for the ingredients to fall out potentially yep. of a jaffle than a sandwich. And it's the texture and it's the way it bursts out. Like you bite into a sandwich, you can see it. You know, if someone makes you a sandwich, you can say, oh, there's corn, there's tomato, but a jaffle, no, it's a mystery a waiting par- to be discovered. Yeah, a parcel of wonder. Yeah, so I could, oh. But you, I mean, I, you probably made it. Well, <laughs> or the joy, okay, of making it for someone else and then watching them. You could have some jalapeno, corn, cheese. I used to put corn chips in. Yeah, like a Textural. bit of like a, yeah, nacho in a jaffle. Here's what it's good for, I would think. Mm-hmm. A school lunch. Like you whack it in the bag and it's not leaking. That it is. Why are we celebrating closed edges on a sandwich? Who cares? <laughs> oh, it's contained again. The mystery, the bursting. I mean, it's like a dumpling. Similar kind of experience, maybe. It's sealed, and the way the flavour bursts out. Mm. I'm sure there's experts out there who could make a better case for the jaffle that I'm making right now. Well, I do like the idea of the camping. The eye. I think that's an impressive invention. Oh, incredible. Uh, but I, I, I see no reason to bring a Jaffa line at its home out in a campfire into the house. No, look, I probably am not doing that. But but I have apparently baked bean Jaffles used is a bit of a, um, oh. a stoner favourite. <laughs> oh, 100%. Um, baked beans, the tin spaghetti. The tin uh, spaghetti is another favourite. A classic. Favorite, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I've I've recently had. If you're doing something exciting, like uh, there were lamb shank leftovers mm. that were converted into a pie. Yeah. Now, if you gave me a lamb shank jaffle, yeah. All right. Now we're talking. Okay. Here <laughs> but we go. But if you're just singeing my mouth with mustard and chicken, you can piss off. Woo! <laughs> 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 uh, that's right. Triple R. <laughs> Studio, the freshly coiffed Friday funny bugger, Irby Majumda. Morning, Irby. Hey, how are you guys? Yeah, well. Tremendous. That was good. What's news in your world? Um, not too much. I just came back from touring um, Sydney and Brisbane, which is really fun. Um, and also have moved house because, um, yeah, I'm sad to say to all Triple L listeners who really care. Um, but yeah, I just went through a breakup with um, Jonathan, who's also a Friday funny bugger. Um, oh, it was mutual and um, like we're friends and stuff. And I spoke to him yesterday about doing this segment and he's like, 
like, yeah, just mention it on air because it'd be funny. <laughs> Very Jerry and Elaine um, vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's that's great. Um, but yeah, because uh, we've been on a journey here. Like, um, we almost bought a house, and then he um, didn't say anything, and then freaked out live on air um, <laughs> the next day. And then over that weekend, it fell through. So then I freaked out live on air the following week. <laughs> um, you owe really the listeners an explanation <laughs> yeah. of where you two are at. And now we've broken up. So um, don't try to buy a house. Um, yeah, so it's been. Um, I haven't been single in seven years so it's been a really long time um and I think I'm yeah I'm just uh not fully there yet with accepting it as in like not in a sad way it's just like um I would just uh, I've been told by everyone to get back on the apps and everything Mm -hmm. um not right now because it's been um, it's really recent um but I don't know about you guys but I've had just like the worst dates I've only had two dates on tinder eight years ago and they were really bad can we hear about them yeah so the um the the more weird one was okay so I went on this date with this guy called mouth um (laughs) mouth (laughs) his friends called him mouth and I was like oh intriguing like what could that be um and then I went on the date and I realized quickly realized it's because he like never shut up and oh. it was just like mouth because he just kept talking and it was like three hours of just like getting steamrolled like I didn't I don't even know if he like knew my name or anything it was just him talking um so then I just like never replied to his texts um again and just never saw him again brutal um, but yeah so what what was he what can you wrap it on about for that long? Um, he was an actor oh, and yeah. he kept doing like impersonations of people and being like, oh. if you'd seen that movie, that'd be really funny. <laughs> uh, so just the, you know, great guy. Um, and I remember at that time it was like the Broad City finale was happening and I had all my friends over and we were watching it. And then I got a text from him and then like in front of all my friends, I opened it and it was this video, like high production video of him singing someone like you, a cappella. Um, and then it was like, it, panned into his computer screen which was um like a tile it was like tiles of my face no just like all my facebook pictures that's wild was he being was it a joke no i just like didn't reply (laughs) okay wow that's Um, alarming classic mouth yeah it was freaking crazy um so yeah i was since then i was just like okay obviously i don't know how to pick them um they're kind of crazy so that was one what was the second Mm. date like Okay, second date, also not proud of it. Um, so it was like I came back from a festival, I think it was like in Avatica, and um, my housemate at the time was like, yeah, just get it, like who cares, like invite whoever over. And I was talking to this guy about Parks and Rec on Tinder, and I was like, yeah, why don't you come over? It was like 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then he came and his eyes were like so wide. <laughs> and he had just like, he just like, it was clearly on drugs. Um, and then we he made us watch like the back, like the, um, what's it called, like deleted scenes of Parks and Rec for uh-huh. like another two hours and just kept commentating on it. And then was like yeah I was just like can you leave now and now he just like knows where I live so um wow yeah it's tough out there isn't it's it it's really hard I'm not looking forward to <laughs> oh it oh my god yeah I think you definitely need a few tips and pointers yeah what are your what are your opinions about dating apps I mean I was on the dating apps for a long time like I don't love them but I definitely if someone is single and they want to meet someone I definitely like encourage them to do it yeah and definitely it's just a part of maybe being single like it's definitely not ideal there will be some bad days but I think you need to dating is incredibly awkward (laughs) it's exhausting and I think it's something that you need to practice if you do want to meet someone but it depends what you're after I'm also big on a number drop as well on a napkin getting like if you see someone out you see a shop assistant waiter like why not just write a little friendly note 
you know, yeah. thought you were cute to boot. Here's my number. And if they've got a partner, then who cares? Like they'll be, you've made their day. Yeah. And you don't even have to do the drop yourself. And the girl I'm living with at the moment, she met her partner um, through doing that, doing oh my a God, number drop. What? Yeah. So I definitely am for the apps and I'm for safety on the apps as yes, well. So definitely course. not inviting people over at 2am. <laughs> but that's all right. You threw it out there and you live and you learn. I was Evie. a tiny baby. Like I exactly. was like so young. That um, was seven years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely some things you could do differently. What yeah. um, what should – what do you look for or what do you, what catches your attention? Do you remember? Um, do I remember? <laughs> or what do, you, what do you anticipate will capture your attention? Um, it's really hard to say because I feel like I'm so, I'm so, like, sarcastic in my own head. It's, like, really exhausting actually. Um, and then even in real life I feel like if, if I went up to someone and was nice like you um, just suggested that, I feel like that would be cute. But then if anyone talks to me in public, I'm immediately like, you must be gross, like, walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, mean, this is a problem, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and obviously the apps are inescapable. They're a necessary evil, but they are a sign of a scared and broken culture. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what I look for. I feel like I'm a little bit um, gaslighting myself because, okay, so I was listening to a podcast about attachment styles and it pretty much was like if you feel chemistry with anyone, like really check yourself because you're probably just like repeating some old behaviour that's ingrained. I mean, how confusing. I know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. So I'm meant to like look for any, like someone who I don't feel chemistry with. Yeah, um, just flatline. Okay, this must be good i'm really shallow i feel like if they have like a funny answer to a question um if they have like dimples it's cute Um, dimples and sense of humor we're getting somewhere (laughs) because i think there are in hetero apps they're 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 called whales i think like 10 percent of people capture you know 80 percent of the Uh, suitors out there oh i didn't know that okay Mm. right as in like because they're so cool yeah, or whatever whatever the features are that are fashionable at that moment, they right. yeah, they're scooping up everyone. And so the apps are kind of like funneling uh, the yeah. love interests in a very narrow band. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like when I meet someone, I can pretty it's like pretty instantly like I just have a gut feeling of like whether I'm like if it's in that way. Um so I think I'm going to have to train myself to stop being so harsh and um Have you had yeah. it doesn't even have to be romantic, but any friends or encounters where someone's grown on you and it's surprised you? Um no. Okay. <laughs> I feel like okay, I've only been single for one year of my adult life, so I need. Wow. I think I need to just like take it chill. Um, I'm just gonna like learn how to cook. What are my goals? I'm gonna get my nose pierced again. Um, right. Learn how to cook. I bought Jamie Oliver's book, which has like it has like three ingredients per recipe, so perfect for me. Um, and like do some writing and stuff, and then I think I can get back out there. Hopefully. Yeah. Any bad behaviors like pajamas too late? I, I don't know. Indulgences that you're allowing yourself because it's a tumultuous period. Oh yes, oh, plenty. Um, really not none none healthy. Just okay. like excessive yeah. drinking, you know the usual. Um, but I might, I'm going to get a new personality in July. So, oh, sweet. Uh, oh. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, so have good. me back then. Recognize me. Um, and so, what about gigging? Is that do you find it a salve to get out of the house, be on stage? You're like, I just want to be miserable inside for a bit. Yeah, so I did my first gig where I mentioned it on stage the uh, at Miss Moses the other day, um, which was I feel like I was really nervous about that, but it was also torturous because I just did my show like a billion times, um, and in that show, it's like the whole narrative is like, and then I did get a boyfriend and he's great, and um, and then like all these jokes about um, just like us fight. It's like so obvious. I'm like, we always fight. 
night, but that's crazy and cool. Um, and it's just like everyone, it just felt really painful having to say that again and again. And then his whole family came in New South Wales as well, who were lovely, but it was just like, oh, wow. Yeah. So I think I'm just going to have to like bite the bullet. It's just, there's nothing worse than saying something really personal and then bombing. Um, <laughs> I mean, rejected on two alone. levels. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it went, and the spaces was good. So yeah. Um, but I am doing some gigs and also I've got uh, at my work at Fitzgerald Community Arts, we do like a um, comedy night, which has been going really well. So the next one is next Friday. Um, and we have like Lizzie Who, Aurelia St. Clair, a bunch Amazing. of really good acts on. So I'll Does... be drinking mulled wine and crying in the back. Yes, those details again, sorry. <laughs> so the 16th of June, next okay. Friday at Footscray Community Arts. It's called Footscray Laughs and it always sells out. And we have mulled wine, which is the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you can just go to footscrayarts.com. All to right, look up we'll catch Irvi there and uh, on the app, swipe right. Thanks very much, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.